in March of 2020, just a couple of months ago, at the height of the global pandemic, the Google search for prayer was the highest that it's ever been recorded, up 50% just from the previous month, February. This tells us a couple of things. Uh, One, that in the midst of crisis, many people, religious or not, we don't actually really know, uh, turn to prayer uh, for comfort and for strength. And two, that they don't really know how to pray or they don't know what to pray for, hence the Google search. Maybe you've felt this way over the last couple of months. Maybe uh, in the midst of this pandemic, you've noticed yourself praying more or wanting to pray more. But as you've prayed more and more, maybe you've run out of things to pray for or you've uh, gotten lost in your own prayers. You've been bored by your own prayers. Maybe you've just hit a wall. Uh, I've certainly felt a couple of those things, if not all of them, over the last couple of months myself. As we continue this uh, series through the book of Ephesians, we discover a prayer today that Paul offers for the community in Ephesus that I think uh, if we pray, and I don't say this lightly, it will change the world. Here's what he writes. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. You can sense Paul's love and affection for this community by this admission of his, that whenever he thinks of them or remembers them, he swells with gratitude. And it's worth noticing, I think, that Paul doesn't pray for their circumstances to change. In fact, in uh, all of the, the writings of Paul and in the prayers that he offers for his friends there, He never prays for their circumstances to change. This isn't really how I'm used to praying at all, and I imagine it's not how you're used to praying at all either. Uh, Like many of the the people who searched Google in March for how to pray uh, during this pandemic, circumstances often drive my prayers. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? Uh, Both the Psalms as well as Jesus teach us to bring our circumstances before God in prayer. But what's unique about this prayer that Paul offers here is that it grounds us, it anchors us in something deeper than our circumstances, which, as we all know, are bound to change from time to time. And he basically prays uh, that their lives would be shaped by two things, by hope and power. Hope and power. He wants them to know what is the hope to which they've been called and to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And even though he prays that they would know these things, this isn't just an intellectual exercise. When uh, he prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, uh, what he's referring to is that the heart in Scripture is uh, the center, the core of our lives. It's the organ that controls our deepest desires and our deepest commitments out of which uh, our wills are shaped and our decisions are made. 
I want to focus on power primarily this morning, but here's what I'll say about hope. I'm really grateful, and I take a lot of comfort in the fact that Paul prays for hope. It means that it's not natural uh, or intuitive to us. I know that many of us are worst-case scenario kind of people. But in order for us to uh, live as hopeful people, live into this hope that Paul calls us to, uh, we're going to need God's Spirit to give it to us. And not just once, but over and over again. If it seems that you're uh, short on hope right now, one reason might be that you're trying too hard with your own effort to hope for something that God will only give you as you pray for it. Now, as I mentioned, I, I want to talk more about power this morning. And as Thomas explored last week, the city uh, of Ephesus was a, a place of cultural and economic and political power. And Paul knows that there are forces at work in Ephesus that will challenge the unity of the community there. He knows that uh, in every relationship, whether it's a marriage or a family relationship or an economic relationship or a political relationship, that the way that power is often used is just to get people to do what you want them to do. And the same is true for us as well. How we use our power can threaten unity, it can drive us away from each other, or it can bring us closer together. We've certainly seen uh, in the events just in Minneapolis this week of the damage that it causes to personal life as well as to an entire community when power is abused. But Paul tells us of another power that's available to us who believe. And so he goes on to write this. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power available to us in Christ is not the power to get other people to do what we want them to do. According to Paul, that's not how God's power works. In fact, God challenges this kind of power by raising Jesus from the dead and offering a new kind of power to the world that had never been seen before, the power to give our lives in service to others. And in case that sounds like a lofty theological platitude or a boring commencement speech address, consider the impact of this power on the world. Uh, the historian Tom Holland wrote a book recently called Dominion, in which he shows that the values we hold of equality, uh, the dignity of the weak and the vulnerable, of basic human rights, uh, as well as the possibility for suffering to have meaning and to be redeemed, are directly due to the influence of this kind of power embodied by Christians for the last 2,000 years. And I think what makes this book actually even more powerful is that Holland is not a professing Christian, uh, but through writing about other ancient cultures, particularly the Roman and the Greek cultures, uh, he comes to the realization that his entire value system and that of the West is due to Christianity. Here's what he said. 
I had never originally thought that I would write about the history of Christianity because my true interest was the apex predators of the classical world, uh, Greece and Rome and so on. But over the course of writing, particularly about the Romans, I came to feel that they were increasingly alien, increasingly frightening to me. Uh, and I began to wonder what was the process by which we changed from the civilization of Rome to the civilization that we have today. And the conclusion that I came to was that in almost every way, what makes us distinctive today reflects the influence over 2,000 years of the Christian story, of Christian theology, of the evolution of Christian doctrines. And so he tells stories uh, in his book of how Christians throughout history, so moved by the example of Christ and his cross and God's power to raise Jesus from the dead, that they cared for others uh, during the plagues without concern for themselves. They treated the poor with dignity and respect. They rejected greed and privilege. They rescued uh, abandoned infants from trash heaps. And they accepted suffering just as Christ had. And I don't mean to suggest, and neither does Holland mean to suggest, that the the history of Christianity is free from the misuse or abuse of power. Only that, when embodying the kind of power that is displayed in Christ's death and resurrection, the church has changed the world. Now, this power doesn't just belong to history. It wasn't just available to the Christians of the past. It's available to us right now as well. We're part of this story. Paul tells us that the risen and ascended Christ lovingly rules over all the world with his power and he fills his church with his presence. And by virtue of faith in Christ, we have access to the same power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can empower us to live our lives right here, right now. I mean, every day you have decisions about how you will use your power. Will you use it to get others to do what you want them to do? Will you use it to serve them? Like hope, this power and using it in this way does not come natural to us. And so we will need to pray for it. And we'll need others to pray for us as Paul prayed for the community in Ephesus. It will definitely take a far more disciplined prayer life than running a Google search every now and then. But imagine, imagine if we continue the mission of Christ's church to offer a different kind of power to the world wherever we live, work, and play. Power to unite and to bring together. Power to heal and to serve. Power to uh, suffer for the sake of others and to stand with the oppressed and the marginalized. Power to offer grace and mercy to sinners. I'll tell you what will happen if we do. It'll change the world. It already has. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.